this week's Torah portion, or shall I say Torah portions, is um, called Tazria and Mitzvah. So we're on page 222. And have we had yet a double parsha? I think we might have had a double parsha already. We have. We, we have. Uh-huh. Um, then everyone understands why we have double parshas? Because of leap months. Leap months, exactly. So if you have 54 Torah sections, parshas, uh, that you have to finish every year, well, some years are much longer, have four or five additional weeks. Uh, thus, in order to uh, accommodate for all those extra weeks, you have to have all the extra Torah portions. Uh, but the, week, the years that are shorter, you have to double up. Um, and uh, this week is a double parsha. Now, what's actually interesting, as a side note, in Israel, they're a week ahead of us. So they read this last week. Uh, every once in a while, there's a certain um, uh, rift or change that happens between the parsha schedule that we have in the United States, and really essentially the whole world, and in Israel. Why is that? As we know, the holiday of Passover, we just, we just celebrated. So we have two days of holiday, like two seders, right? Seder one, seder two. And then two days of, of, the, of the second bookend of the holiday, the last days of the holiday. In Israel, they only have one seder and one last day. Now, the last day of this pa- Passover was a Saturday, Shabbat. Because it was Passover, we don't read the regular Torah portion. However, in Israel, the last day of Passover wasn't a Friday, Thus, the Saturday that, that immediately followed was a regular Saturday, so they read the regular Torah portion. Thus, they're a week ahead of us. And the Are text, they going to stay a week No, no, eventually we're going to catch up. Eventually we're going to double up on one Parsha that they're not doubling up. But it's, uh, it's very interesting. Like, like my brother's now in Israel. So he's going to Israel now, and he's going to go to the synagogue on Shabbat, and he's going to say, okay, let's read the Torah portion. He's like, oh, whoop, we skipped because you're in Mitzorah. Because <laughs> that's what they read last week, and that's what we're reading this week. A nice, uh, a nice interesting oddity that happens every once in a while. Okay, so a quick overview of the Parsha, um, or these Parshas. What's actually very interesting is that they seem to be linked together in not just uh, that we read them uh, in the same week, but also because the content material is the same, almost the same. It's, it's continual. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, if you read it as one, you won't find that you're veering, off, uh, you're veering off onto a different subject matter. Uh, essentially, there's, uh, there's two items being discussed uh, in both parshas. Uh, item number one is the laws of purity and impurity. Now, if you look at Jewish literature, a significant portion of Jewish literature, I would say about 20%, as much as 20%, uh, it deals with the laws of purity and impurity. And not in the Torah as much, but for sure, once you get to the Mishnah, the Talmud, a, a, a dizzying amount of, of, of information and time is spent on the laws of purity and impurity. I would say that. Well, because out of the six orders of the Mishnah, an entire order, thus 16%, is dedicated, 16 and change, obviously, is dedicated towards, uh, 16.66, six, I think it would be, uh, is dedicated towards um, the laws of purity and impurity. Now, this for us is not a big deal at all. Uh, however, in the times when the temple was in existence and the sacrifices were in existence and certain foods can be eaten in certain states of purity and impurity, um, it was a very, very, very big deal. Like if you had a, if you made a sacrifice, right? So you have special food, you got to eat in a special place in a special state of purity. Now, if someone else comes around who is quote-unquote impure, and they come and they say, hey, what's that? What do you got there? And they start, they start handling your food. You know what? You can't eat the food anymore. You got to burn it. It's a big deal, right? So therefore, the state that pe- people have to constantly be aware of what state they're in and what condition they're in. And they know you got to walk into the temple if you're impure. You can't touch certain foods if you're impure. Well, well, around, around, I would say about yeah, 15 to 20%. Well, the Torah as well, the, this week's parshas deal with it extensively, but not 20%, obviously. Uh, so, um, so this week's portion deals with, uh, with the, uh, this week's portions, the beginning of parsha number one and the end of parsha number two deal with the five to seven different kinds of purity and impurity states that could exist. Um, 
it would be like uh, it would be let's say three states of impurity for men and four states of impurity for women. Um, what are these states? This might sound a little strange, but if a woman has a baby, so if right after a woman has a baby for seven days, she can't go to the temple. Um, uh, if a woman is uh, menstruating, right, that's another thing it says. If a woman has some sort of other emission called uh, uh, a zava, which is an irregularity in her cycle, right? Depends if it could be a minor irregularity or a major irregularity. Those are the four states of impurity for women. Uh, men, if they have a seminal emission, or if they have also two states of other emissions, which is certain sickness that would would produce a bodily fluid that it's not quite similar to the seminal emission, but it's a different kind of emission, and depends in it to be in a, in, a, in a minor state of 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 uh, of disrepair or, or illness, or in a major state of illness. Those are the four four categories, and the Torah also deals with okay, fine. Let's say you have you have that. Well, what do you got to do? You know. Um, some of these states are actually quite natural, you know. So what, what does someone need to do? Like it's Passover. You want to eat the Passover. You want to do the Passover Seder in Jerusalem. Well, you have to be sure you're a state of purity. So how do you make sure that beforehand that you prepare for it uh, to, you know, to make sure that when you come to Jerusalem and come to Israel, you're qualified to go into the temple and participate in the activities. That's uh, one of the major, major uh, topics of these two parshas. Like I said, it's the beginning of the first one and the end of the second one. Now, I want to say before we try to deconstruct that, it's, for us, it's a very distant idea, like the idea of purity and impurity. It's like uh, the state of the software of our soul, you know? It's hard for us to realize that there's any, there's no tangible difference between someone who is pure, quote-unquote, by Torah standards, or impure. It's not like they're dirty. Like, we, we associate purity with, with cleanliness and, and impurity with dirtiness. Uh, it's not like that. It's, and it's, it's hard for us to actually come up with clear definitions as to, uh, as to what, is the, what is the state of, uh, or what, what changes, what transpires, what transforms in a person from being, let's say, pure and, quote-unquote, able to go into the temple to impurity. It's a very hard thing for us uh, to really uh, internalize or understand. Uh, but I think a good rule of thumb is the idea of purity is always linked to life. And the idea of impurity is, is linked to death. That's a, a, um, a, that's a, a across the board. Like if someone, uh, if someone is a Kohen, they have even today restrictions against coming into contact with dead people. Thus a Kohen doesn't go to the cemeteries. Cohen doesn't walk into a hospital where there's dead people or if there, if there is the risk of dead people. Even today, uh, Cohen won't walk by a, a cemetery if there, there's a tree in the cemetery and there's an overhang, like the shade of the, of the tree hangs over to the street below. You can't walk under, that, that, under, the, under, the, under the shade of that tree. Like, very detailed laws uh, for the coin. Now, so a dead person, obviously that's death. You know, if someone's dead, they're dead. There's a loss of opportunity. There's a loss of potential. There's a loss of life, right? Similarly, when a woman menstruates. So yes, there was potential life and now it's gone. You know, a seminal mission. Once again, that's linked to continuity. It's linked towards uh, uh, vitality, towards uh, the world continually existing. And when that's gone from the person, well, a certain measure of quote-unquote death uh, and, and impurity descends upon him. That's, I think, a good rule of thumb to try to understand this very perplexing uh, element of, of Torah, of Torah thought. So yes, and also this, if it's a relative or the, what kind of hospital is it, if, if, if and who's, in, in, in America, it's really actually not much less of a problem than it is in Israel. Because in America, you assume the vast majority of people in the hospital are non-Jews. And the laws of purity and impurity only deal with uh, deceased Jews. Once again, these things are very bizarre to understand. Like, it's not something which is simply understood. It's not like, hey, don't steal, don't murder, don't rape. Those things are much more consumable for us. Uh, so in, in the United States, it's, it's very different. Uh, in Israel, it's a much bigger issue. You know, because you walk into a hospital, you, 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 first of all, you don't know if anyone's dead. Possible everyone's still alive, right? That's number one. Um, number two, you don't know if, even if someone is dead, well, likelihood that they're not Jewish. Thus, they don't have the same uh, impurity standards or, or um, uh, the, the threat of impurity doesn't, isn't as, uh, as, as apparent, as, as tangible, as palpable 
as it would be in Israel. So um, I remember, I remember when uh, we were in when yeshiva in Israel, and every once in a while I was in the biggest yeshiva in the world. Yeshiva is the, uh, a, a school of of Judaics, uh, and the biggest yeshiva in the world. And every once in a while, it was a very big faculty. The, one of the faculty members, if the faculty member would die, well, then they would have the uh, the eulogies and the beginning of the funeral procession would leave from the building of the yeshiva. Uh, so you have uh, a, a deceased individual in the building. So there were signs, always massive signs in uh, on the doors of the entrance of the building. If you're a Kohen, don't enter the building because a Kohen cannot enter the building that ha- an enclosure that has that person in it. And in fact... They had two buildings, so one building here, one building across the street, but they were linked via an underground channel. So uh, from the laws of very complex laws of enclosures that create a single entity, um, that would also mean that even if there's a slight enclosure, if there's a little pipe connecting the two buildings, well, it's one big building. So even if I walk into the other building, that person's in that building, well, I can't do that either. Big signs everywhere, coin, don't walk in danger, right? <laughs> Flying debris, <laughs> workers uh, at work or whatever, like massive signs because you can't, you can't walk in, you know. Rabbi, you go ahead. Is yes. it true uh, that they, Kohens can't even attend a funeral except only if it's a relative, a close relative or something? Is that right? Well, for, for close relatives, they're even allowed to um, become impure. Oh, okay. So there's seven, okay. there's seven relatives. I think it's a father, mother, son, daughter. Uh, brother, unmarried sister, and spouse. Those are the seven. Um, Those are the seven, uh, the seven relatives that a coin is is allowed by Torah law to uh, contaminate themselves. Uh, The one exception to that would be the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Well, they're not allowed to contaminate themselves to anyone because they're the high priest, so they have to, they have to remain in a constant state of purity. So that, okay, so that, well, so, not, so the, not do that. Right, so the Mishnah says that the Kohen Gadol, if they want to participate in the funeral, of course they want to participate in the funeral, mm-hmm. but they would they would be so far back as the, like, to always like have a massive buffer between the funeral uh, procession and the Kohen Gadol. So like okay. it describes that, hey, if they're going around the, around the right turn, so let's say if the procession is going like this, I'm showing, demonstrating here, right? Then if when they turn over here, well, then he turns over here. And when they turn over here, then he turns over here. So he's like always significantly and, uh, and decidedly uh, removed from the procession. So his sister? Yes, she yes. Well, uh, well, that's, 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 uh, it seems like once she gets married, then, well, she's, you know, she's married to someone else and that kind of lessens their relationship uh, to a certain degree. Um, but even today, like if you notice, if you ever go to Jewish cemetery, you'll notice that they always have uh, pathways and the pathways are usually separated from the grid. They very often have a uh, like a buffer, like a, a, a little fence there. Thus, the Kohen could walk along in 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 between. I mean, not coming in close contact with the with the grave. If there's if there's a halachic mechitza or barrier, all you need is forty inch barrier to be totally see through. It's fine as long as it's forty inches uh, barrier between the graves and the pathway. He he could walk there. And if you'll notice, if you ever go to a Jewish cemetery, you walk around, you notice that the Kohens, if you'll notice, all the people that are next to these pathways are all Kohen, the Kohen family, the Korn family, the Katz family, all the Kohen, Kaplan families, names that are associated with Kohens, because they design the cemeteries to make it possible for the Kohens to go, you know, visit the deceased loved ones and not have to just take binoculars and, you know, and look at the gravesite, you know, that's uh, 100 feet away. So it's right next to, they could just, they could essentially participate in the funerals and participate in, you know, in the bereavement process or visiting the, visiting, the, or, you know, the erection of the, uh, of, of the, uh, of the, um, of, of the headstones, etc. They could participate because they accommodate the, the this need of, of the, the, of the they never knew that. visit uh, later on? Yeah, they could visit, provided they don't come in direct contact with the, with a gravestone or any other gravestones. How, how do they purify themselves now? We can't. That's the problem. Is um, forever impure? Well, different. No. Uh, well, different states of of one of the things that the tour this tour portion deals with in great detail is the different states of impurity and how that's undone. 
So um, some of them it's undone with just going to a mikvah and waiting to the nightfall. Some of them it's undone uh, with uh, a seven-day process. Some of them, like uh, someone comes in contact with a dead person, that's where you get the law of the red heifer, the very bizarre and strange law of the red heifer. You got to take this completely red heifer, you got to slaughter it in Jerusalem and then go outside of Jerusalem and burn it and, and take the ashes and mix it with special water and mix it with special reeds. And it's very bizarre to us. This is like the prototypical mitzvah that is a chok, it's a statute that we don't understand. Like there's no overlap between God's intelligence in this matter and ours. Like it's, it's you know, even King Solomon, we have record, recorded in, in, in Jewish literature, King Solomon says to God, I'm so smart, I'm so genius, but I can't figure this out. Help me explain. So God says, no, 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 sorry, this is beyond your capacity. The, uh, on record, we have only one individual who understood the mitzvah of the red heifer. That would be? Who would that be? Moshe? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Moses was the one who figured it out, but <laughs> not, not even like people like uh, uh, King Solomon. Maddie forgot to write down. <laughs> well, he, yeah, he didn't. I don't think he, he didn't explain it. So, uh, so, so that's that. Um, and by the way, uh, the controversy that exists. There's lots of controversy that arises from these uh, from these laws even today. Um, like, for example, walking on Temple Mount. So, if you go to visit Israel, there's big signs at, at the you know they have that. Um, that, uh, that, that wooden uh, little conduit that goes up onto Temple Mount and they have all these tourists with their big hats, right? They're all going to, all, they're all going to visit Temple Mount. And there's big signs everywhere that according to the Jewish law, Jews are not allowed to go into Temple Mount. Now, why is that? Because every one of us today has the state of impurity that would invalidate us from going to the Temple. Why? Because we were all born in hospitals and we all touched people that touched people that came in contact with dead people, you know? Um... Thus, we would not be allowed to go onto the temple site. Now, the Talmud and Jewish law makes it very clear that the temple site retains its requirements of purity even after the temple's gone. So, temple's gone. There's no, you won't go, there's no temple. All you have is the shrine of the you know the shrine is built in the year six ninety one by the Muslims. It's not a, by the way. Dome of the Rock is not a must. Very important. It's a shrine, and it's built uh, exactly. Uh, 621 years after the destruction of the temple. Uh, and it um, that's what you have. There's no temple. I looked everywhere. I couldn't find it, right? So there's no temple anywhere. But the site of the temple, uh, where it once stood, that also retains the requirements of purity for someone to go there. That's why it says on those big signs, according to Jewish law, uh, Jews are not allowed to go. Now, another thing, just to add, the uh, there are some Jews that do go there. In fact, there was this whole hullabaloo recently uh, about the one Jew who went up there. He's like an activist, a Temple Mount activist, and he was beaten up. And right, this guy with a huge red beard. Remember, y'all saw that in the news. I don't know his name, Yehuda something, Glitchstein or Glitchstone or Glitch or whatever. Um, so, uh, what's his rationale? So, there are those that um, there are lots of uh, debate, scholarly debate, as to exactly where in Temple Mount uh, the temple stood. So um, there are those that say it stood right where the Dome of the Rock is. There are those that say it stood like a few hundred feet to the, to, to the south towards the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Um, um, There's it's, it's a debate about it. So there's those that say, well, I'm so sure I know where it is. Thus, uh, my, all my research made it very clear that it was over here. Thus, I could walk over there, you know, walk in some other place. I don't know. <laughs> um, so the wall is both and where they pray Outside. Well, the, the the Western Wolf. You go to any like uh, Israel tour guide, or even I see it so often. Like um, I see it like in 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 publications and in newspapers and magazines. They say, well, the Western Wall is Israel's or you know Judaism's most holy site. In fact, the Western Wall is a retaining wall for Temple Mount built when they refurbished the temple. Um, Herod, Herod the Great. Uh, he began this project in the year 19 before the Common Era to refurbish the temple. So they reinforced they reinforced the Temple Mount with retaining walls on all sides. And in fact, it was a, a enormous, enormous uh, one one of history's most grandest operations. Uh, you know, we see the wall; we see a tiny snippet of the wall. The wall goes for hundreds and hundreds of, of feet uh, to the left, and it did to the right as well, and down. 
and even up. It went much further up. In fact, there are stones there that are so big. I think this one stone, uh, if you, you go to the temple, the the, 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 t- the tunnel tours, yeah. there's one stone that's like 45,000 tons, and they have no idea how, a tremendous feat of engineering to try to actually just move it. You know, there's massive stones that are polished and nice and beautiful. But that's what, the, te- that's what mm-hmm. the Western Wall is. Western Wall is one of the walls on the western side of Temple Mount that is still extant from uh, from the times of Herod that was retaining the Temple Mount. It itself is not part of the Temple at all. Temple's gone. Um, and even the Western Wall was raised, raised with the A-Z-E-D, um, as opposed to R-A-I-S-E-D, uh, during the times of, of, of uh, Hadrian. So Hadrian, the Roman Emperor Hadrian, uh, he shows up about uh, you know, 50 years after the Temple's destroyed, uh, the year 117. And in the year 135, uh, he made he made some of the um, the edicts against Torah study. And if you you know if you give your kid a circumcision, we'll chuck it, we'll chuck the mother and the baby off a uh, off a cliff. Crazy stuff that he did. He kind of is the uh, is the heir of of Antiochus from the Greek times. You know, the year 167 before the Common Era. So uh, one of his campaigns was. Uh, well, that's when Bar Kokhba, the Bar Kokhba rebellion, w- is a response to the to, to Hadrian's persecutions. The year one thirty two, so one thirty two and one thirty five. I'm sorry for launching into history lesson. I apologize. Oh, I love it. Yeah. So the year one thirty two, the Jews get fed up with all these new restrictions and they mount a revolt. It's in fact the only successful revolt in the two 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 three hundred years of Pax Romana. It's the only time where uh, where a revolt was successful in getting rid of uh, Romans from an entire country. The Jews reclaim sovereignty over Israel. They um, uh, they mint coins. In fact, the coins, the coinage in Israel today that we have on the Israeli shekels, they're replicas of the coins that we found that we still find by the hundreds from the times of Bar Kokhba. Um, Bar Kokhba was this great mighty warrior, and he Rabbi Akiva, the great rabbi at the time, thought he was going to be the Messiah. You know, uh, and then they have three years of, of sovereignty over Israel and the Romans mount a, and Hadrian mount a, an operation. They totally destroy everyone and, and the city of Betar was the last stronghold and it was a disaster. Uh, but one of the things that he did during the years 135, 36, and 137, till he died, thankfully he died, um, uh, because it, he, he set out to systematically dismantle uh, Jerusalem and Israel and Judaism. Um, so he was burning rabbis at stakes all the time. So like the, Who are you Hadrian, Hadrian, okay. uh, uh, Hadrian died in year one thirty eight. So when when he died, all those all those edicts ended. But like he, for example, he would take the great rabbis and wrap them in Torah scrolls and burn them of life, like stuff like that. He he's the one who flayed Rabbi Akiva, the great Rabbi Akiva. You know the ten martyrs that we read about in Yom Kippur. Uh, one of the highlights of the Yom Kippur service is where we talk about the ten martyrs. Those are all from Hadrian's persecutions. Uh, so he renamed Jerusalem, for example. You know, Jerusalem went from Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina. Israel went from Judah, was called Judah at the time. It became suddenly uh, Palestine or Palestinia, right? Which is a name taken from the times of King David, 800, 900 years earlier. King David and uh, and 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 Solomon and and the, you know the, those the times that we are discussed in the book of, of Judges, there was this a coastal uh, a group called the Philistines. You know, Samson had his great battles with the Philistines, so that name was revived by Hadrian to rename Israel. It means to get rid of Judah, Israel, uh, um, uh, Israel, um, just rename Jerusalem. Jews weren't allowed to live in Jerusalem. He made Jerusalem a capital for Jupiter and for Zeus for the gods. Um, he. Uh, um, the city of Shechem, the the uh, the biblical city of Shechem, uh, that, that has that um, uh, infamous story with the sons of Jacob, and they go and right they kidnap the daughter. That story, so it's called Shechem. It's a biblical city of Shechem. Now, what's it, what's it called now in Israel? I mean, who knows the Israeli name or the Arabic name for Shechem? Nablus. Uh, that's right. Now, this is another example of. Hadrian renaming a biblical city, he named he named it Neopolis, new city. As we know, Arabs have cannot say the p sound, so Neopolis becomes Nablus. Very interesting, right? You know that if you're in Israel and you want to know if your taxi driver is is Jewish or Arab, you say hey, say telephone, which means cell phone, 
because the Arabs can't say the P sound, they say the B sound, they say Belophone. Right, so Neopal becomes Nablus. But one of the things that he did, he takes Temple Mount and he he shaves off the mount. I mean, not, he, he the mount he lowers it. He like he spends uh, he spends significant uh, efforts to show the Jews that not only you can't live in Israel, but I'm going to take your holy site and I'm just going to dig it up and just destroy it. So Temple Mount was much higher. That's how we got here. <laughs> uh, either way, so that's the laws of purity and impurity. Those are discussed in our parsha. That's one of the major um, topics. Uh, the other major topic is the laws of Tsaras. Tsaras uh, is this uh, malady of the skin. Uh, it's, yeah, loosely translated leprosy, but leprosy is something that we have today. We don't have Tsaras today. Essentially, what would happen if someone would speak Lashon Hara, if someone would speak gossip or evil uh, evil talk, which means speaking negatively about someone else, I go over to them and say, hey, did you hear what this guy did? Or do you know about this guy? You know, uh, he's kind of shady in business. He's not so intelligent. He's he's very haughty. He's not so generous. Whatever. Th- if I say something to someone else about a third party, I say something either negative or harmful. Right? That's the general character of Lashon Hara. What would happen in 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 uh, in uh, in the times of the temple, the times of the Jewish people were uh, were uh, on a on a very tangible spiritual level, the person would develop like these skin maladies, like the skin would turn colors either white or gold or streets of black uh, or red or green, and all these are discussed. So that so this saras, this leprosy, loosely translated leprosy, could afflict a person's body, a person's clothing, or a person's house. Yes. Uh, now, this parsha deals with this, uh, all the details. What happens if someone has it on their, on their, on their body? What's the process? Well, if this, if the, he, has to, he has to go to isolation. He has to, uh, he has to be secluded. Uh, we have to, uh, he has to sit outside the city, and the Cohen has to come and assess, and then we put him in, in quarantine for seven days, and then we come back seven days later, did it spread? Right, uh, you know, how, how does it look? Did it change colors? Did it, did, it, did it get deeper? Very, very detailed laws. You know, what to do? Okay, so let's, let's say he got purified. Okay, so what's the purification process? He has to get a haircut, and he has to bring a uh, sacrifice. Wait seven days. Go to the mikvah. Bring another sacrifice. All the details. What happens if it's on his clothing? Well, you gotta. What do you, you have to see the clothing? You gotta quarantine the clothing. See if it spreads. You got might, might have to burn the clothing. What happens if it's on his house? So if it's on his house, you hold the coin, they clear out the house first. What is a skin condition on the house? It's certain splotches that appear that appear that appear yeah, on, on the walls. On the walls. Mold. Mold. Uh, but it's it's not regular mold, it's yeah. kind of the spiritual mold. Think of it as mold, that's a good way to say it. <laughs> yeah, well think about it this way, right? Someone sins, right? Well, someone says, okay, do you, do you feel different? Usually not. Maybe you might feel a little guilt. Yeah, but people usually don't feel it. You know, if someone, is, if someone sins, they, 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 they don't feel it, right? Because even though their soul feels it, but, they're, but how they, their senses and their, uh, their feelings are linked to their body. Their body does, for the body, there's nothing wrong with, with sinning, only for the soul. Thus, it has no tangible manifestation on their lives. Uh, at least uh, on surface level, their soul is pretty miserable, but their body's fine. You know, just like you know, if you drink a glass of water, if you have a coffee, well, you feel you feel something, right? It feels good. You might like the coffee, you might like the water. If you're thirsty, well, then you feel quenched. You know, y- it feels really good to drink some water. Fantastic. When you eat matzah or when you shake a lulav, you feel awkward. You're like, you know, I'm, I'm doing something, you know, because your soul feels it, but your body doesn't. You know, if, when, when most of us eat masa, what do we feel? Do we feel like we're experiencing the exodus and we're at Mount Sinai and we're splitting the sea and there's 10 plates? We don't feel that. We feel like we're chewing crackers, right? The more a person is linked to their, uh, linked to their spiritual reality, the more they feel the spiritual. The more a person is physical, the least they, the, the, the least they feel spiritual. Thus, if someone is almost entirely spiritual, then if they were to sin... It would hurt them. If they spent 12 hours without studying Torah, well, then they would feel hungry. Like it would just be linked to their feelings. Just like if you spent 12 hours without eating, you might feel a little grumbling in the stomach, right? So you might feel grumbling in your soul. If you're, if, if you're 
feelings and senses are linked to your soul, well then, if your soul is deprived, you feel deprived. You know, if you've gone seven days without, you know, without studying Torah, you're totally parched and you're on the verge of dying. That's what you feel like. So when the Jewish people are on that state, right, they had prophecy. What's prophecy? What does the word prophecy even mean? It means that someone is so far along the path of spiritual perfection and spiritual identity that they have a spiritual um, channel with God. But it's not like it's, it's, ta-da, just come hits you like lightning. No, that's the reality of who they are. You know, we have a difficult time connecting to God because we're mostly physical. And God is very distant from being physical. But if we were to be entirely spiritual, then it would be very natural for us. It, that, would, that would just be a natural result of this progression. I look at this saras as being when someone is very, very closely linked with their spiritual reality, then the sins have a much more tangible manifestation. Because that's who they are. They're, they're almost entirely spiritual. Thus, a blemish on their soul is apparent. It's there and it's readily available, right? readily viewable. Nowadays, well, we don't. We, the blemish is still there in our soul when we, we when we have a misdeed, but we don't know of it. We don't feel it. We you know we feel no different. Okay, when you say the blemish is apparent, so you were saying it's apparent on their clothing, it's apparent on their house, and for those things, there are certain prescriptions for what you do to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Saras. Saras. But if the blemish is on the soul. What what does it say that you do to cleanse that? Well, that's what we have the idea of, of tshuva, of repentance. Right. No, I understand, but 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 is that linked in the in the Torah portion? Well, it's 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 a it's a general. I mean, it's not it's not specific to any one instance. It's any time any there's any misdeed. Well, then there's a blemish in the soul, and that's the, the that's the uh, that's we call the miracle. Maimonides talks about. Repentance as being a miracle, you know, something one of the uh, the gifts that God gives us gives us that this is uh, reversible. You know that blemishes on the soul are reversible. Like if someone, if you if you're driving your car in the Bethesda you know parking lot and you give a little zest to your car or you open the door and you, you hit the well, you shouldn't do that. You should be careful when you open the door. You hit a pole and suddenly there's a massive dent in your car, right? That there's a dent, you know, and you maybe you could try to fix it, but you have to like undo it. And if the, if the paint is scratched, that's kind of that's it. You're kind of toast. That's that, you know. It's very hard to undo uh, a, a a physical uh, damage. You know, if, if someone were to uh, take this table and smash it into a million pieces, you know, it'd be very hard to reconstruct it. Similarly, uh, on our soul, on our soul, on a soul sphere, a Blemish on the soul is a real dent. It's a real, it, you know, it, it's it's something tangible to the soul. Thus, for it to be undone as if it never happened, as we're told uh, that repentance is able to undo the misdeed as if it never happened. So, like, imagine you're, able, you're driving your car and you hit the, you, you, whatever, you weren't looking or you're on the phone and texting, which is highly inadvisable. But let's say you did or someone did, right? And they... God forbid they hit a tree, no one's hurt, but the car's all smashed up. Is there anything that they could do to move back the clock and make it that they never got into an accident? Not possible. Not possible. We view um, in, in Jewish in Jewish thought, in Jewish literature, repentance undoes the activity. It makes it as if it never happened. So that's so that's how you would reverse uh, the spiritual and the, and the truth is that even though we don't have this more tangible palpable uh, manifestation of our lashon hara, that's because we don't just our soul is much more distant. But on our soul's level, it is uh, it is affected, and we still need to undo that with with repentance. So when when Ramban says that it's it's on the house, it's on the clothing, um, it's really understood that it's on it's on the soul. And, and that and that one who is spiritual would understand that you do tikkun to do the opposite to, to fix do it. Teshuva, to fix it. But yeah. it's not specifically mentioned in here. It's just understood. Yeah. Well, in it's it's reflected. The- yes, it's reflected. Now, I want to before we, before we start reading here, I have another crazy cool idea here about this this topic. So a few exhibits. Okay, exhibit A. 
uh, is the idea. So someone said, well, what does Saras on the house look like? So we said it's mold light. Think of a mold light, just green splotches just appearing at random. What has to happen? Um, so first you have to quarantine. There's a whole process. It's all laid out. The coin has to come in. First you clear everything else out of the house. So before the coin declares it as being impure, um, you have to take everything else out of the house. You have to get your couches out, your TV out, because all that would be implicated if it was in the house while the house was rendered impure. Uh, so you clear out the house. You have it all in your front yard, You know all your stuff, all your possessions. And uh, the Cohen comes in, he says, well, this is impure, and you gotta, you got to close the house, it waits seven days, did it spread, did it not? Okay, then you take off, let's say it did spread, so you take off all the stones, you remove the stones that have the blemish on it. So you keep the rest of the house that didn't have it. You wait another seven days, and then you see, okay, if it's, if it's spread again, you got to just destroy the whole house. And not to rebuild the rubble. That's the law. Okay, fine. Exhibit A. Exhibit B is the Talmud. Talmud tells us that there's three things, there's three scenarios that the Torah talks about that never happened and never will happen. So why was it written? To learn and to take reward. What are these three things that never happened and never will happen? Yet are scenarios that are delineated in the Torah. Number one, Ben Sorer Umore, which means a wayward and rebellious son of Deuteronomy, where it says if you have a 13-year-old a boy and he eats a certain amount of, steals money from his parents and eats a certain amount of wine, buys wine and buy a certain amount of wine, a certain amount of, of uncooked meat and eats it in bad company and they bring him to the court and they give him lashes and then they bring him back to the court and they execute him. That's, that's essentially what it says. That one says it never happened, never will happen. Why is it written? To learn it, study it, and gain reward. There's, something that, that's, there's some benefit of studying and gaining reward. In fact, we have a member of our board, the Torch Board, uh, who wrote an article, that was published article, in, uh, in, a, in a book on psychiatry, on the various lessons of the way we rebellious son. This is Harvey Rosenstock. Maybe you all are familiar with it. He wrote a whole bunch of lessons of the various details of the law and showing how uh, uh, pedagogical insights into how to be good, a good parent relating to the, to, to, to the myriad of laws of the way we're rebellious. And that's an example of, of, of taking it for the lessons, not for the practical reality. Number one. Number two is a thing that never happened, never will happen. Why is it written uh, to learn and gain reward? Uh, is the, uh, the city of the Irinidachas, the city that the entire city descends into idolatry. And you got to destroy the whole city, and it's a disaster. You have to burn everything. Okay, never happened, never will happen. Why is it written? Learn it and gain reward. And the last thing, the last thing that never happened, never will happen, is saras on a house. Saras on a house never happened, never will happen. So why is it written? You got to learn it and gain reward, gain, gain some insight. That's exhibit B. Y'all ready for exhibit C? Yeah? What do you say? Okay, let's go. Exhibit C. Rashi. Rashi, in our Torah portion, um, the very first Rashi that talks, the very first uh, um, verse, I believe it's uh, uh, 34, 32 or something like that. I'm sorry, 12 or 13, 1334, 1434. I don't, I don't, I don't remember exactly what, what, uh, but the very first verse that talks about Saras on the house. Rashi quotes the Midrash. What does the Midrash say? Midrash says, why did they have Saras in their house? Why does it say in the verse, you go to Israel and you go to your house and there's Saras in the house? Because the previous owners, when they heard that the Jewish people were coming, they took all their valuables, their gold, silver, jewelry, and whatnot, and they put it behind the walls of the house. They hid it. Therefore, that's why you have, that's why you have Saras in the house, because God wants you to, it's not a punishment, it's a blessing. God wants you to see those watches. Say, oh my gosh, uh, I'm, I'm impure, right? You, what's going to happen? You have to pull out those, those bricks. And voila, what are you going to find behind those bricks? All the leftover treasure. That's exhibit C. So we have, number one, the law. Number two, the fact that it never happened. Then number three, we say, oh, why did it happen? Because of the gold. I don't get it. If it happened, then okay, it happened because of the gold. If it didn't happen, 
then what's the point of telling me, oh, you know why it happens? Because of the gold. What do you mean? It never happens. I mean, if the only reason why this was written is for a lesson, not because it's ever happened before, why would the Midrash tell me that, oh, you know why it happens? But wait a minute, it doesn't happen. But why does it happen? Why would you tell me why it happens when it never does happen? Yeah, but there, but that, but 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 Saras in the house never happened. So, in other words, you're saying it's not just a warning. It's it, it's not there just. To it's be not a reality. Never happened. Thomas says never it, happened even once. There's no recorded, documented case in all of human history, in the past and in the future. Prediction: You will never have a situation where you'll have these splotches appear on your wall, and you'll have to pull up, pull up, pull out the stones. Never happened. And yet, we find that Exhibit C. That, oh, not only did it happen, but it happened for a reason. For the reason that, oh, there's gold buried behind it and whatnot. Well, then the wayward son must have happened also. Mm-hmm. Well, but it, but it, well, then there's some sort of lesson. Okay. I like where you're leading to. So, I think perhaps you can say like this, to try to uh, untangle this, this little knot. Indeed, it never happened. But it's written for a reason, right? Thomas says it's written for a lesson. Learn it and gain some lesson, gain reward. What that reward be, could be, either it could be the reward of studying Torah, that's probably a simple answer, or it could be the reward of having some insight, a specific lesson that we could take with us in our lives. Perhaps what it's saying is like this. Indeed, it never happened. However, the Midrash tells us that the scenario that we're talking about is you find your beautiful house and you see splotches. This is, remember, this is a hypothetical. Hypothetical. Your magnificent house, this is, you invested your life in it, you had all the best interior designers come, and it's in the nicest neighborhood, you see the splotches. What did you go to call the calling guy, clear out the house, the whole deal? Eventually, you have to take off the house. Disaster. You have to disassemble your house, at least part of it, and then maybe the whole thing. Bad, terrible things could happen to you. Right? That's the hypothetical. The hypothetical continues. You should know that even though you think that it's terrible things happening to you, in reality, it's uncovering the gold. Indeed, there is a tremendous lesson to us in our lives, on any, any thousand different situations in our lives, when we think bad things are happening to us, the Torah is telling us, you should know, the lesson is, no, 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 no. You might think at first glance, a terrible things happening to us. But in reality, you're just uncovering gold. And it's a very good thing for you, right? That's the lesson. And that's what the Torah says. Learn it and gain insight, right? It's not about this particular situation, this scenario that never happened. However, this scenario is a lesson for other things that you can use the rest of your life. You know, and I'm sure it's happened to me several times in my life. But I'm sure that each and every one of us are on the table here. There's been a situation that something bad happened to us or we perceived it as being bad at the time. Maybe that it was... Uh, uh, you know, we had a, uh, 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 you know, uh, we were dating someone and it didn't work out. We wanted to, we thought it would be the best thing in the world for us to marry them. And then later on, we find out that they're serial killers or just bad people. Yeah. Or we wanted to go to a certain school and we weren't accepted. We ended up going to a different school and it was fantastic. You know, but at the time we were miserable, just crying ourselves to so sleep. You're, saying it, it, you're turning lemons into lemonade. But not, not only that, what you assume is, lemonade, is lemons really is a lemonade. Yeah. It's not like you're, you're taking a bad situation and making it better. It's a perceived bad situation, but ultimately, it's a much better for you. You know, uh, I, I'm sure it's happened. I'm, I, I, don't, I, I know for me, it's happened. I was once there was once an institution that I wanted to go participate in. I wanted to get into the school, and for whatever reason, it was a bizarre situation. Um, a lot of details of the story, but either way, I thought I was in. I wasn't in, and I was just dejected because I was like, okay, I don't have yeshiva now. I'm like, toe. I was like, but it worked out. So much better now in hindsight. But, you know, but to me, I thought, my goodness, I'm disassembling my house now. Like, this is what I invested time and effort, and this is, and this is my handiwork, and now it's nothing. It's gone. But ultimately, in hindsight, I see, you know what? I just uncovered the gold. Yes, at the time, I thought it was bad, but in hindsight, it's clear that it was very good. 
You know, so that's, and that's a lesson we can take with us in any situation in life. We have the great stories of Rabbi Akiva uh, and how he, he would all, he had, a, he had a motto. He had, you know, the thing that he would always say, and that would be, call David Rahman everything that God does is for good. You know, Gamzula Tova, this is also for the good. And the Thomas has a great story about him where he was traveling uh, and he had with him his donkey and he had a, a candle and he had a, a rooster. He had a donkey to travel. He had a candle to study Torah at night. And he had a rooster to wake him up in the morning. Fantastic. There's a, a Talmud. Have y'all heard of the Talmud? And he goes to the city and, and, he, and, he, and, and, and he tries to get, find a place to stay every night. No one wants to let him in. No, in all the inns are brought. And he's like, okay, I'll have to go to the forest. But Damsul Tova, this is also for the best. And then uh, he's there at night studying and then a wind comes and, and it blows out his candle and he's all, he says, okay, this is also for the good. And then and a, 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 a uh, some animal comes and a lion comes and kills the donkey and, and the, uh, the other animal comes and kills the rooster and he says, okay, this is for the best. Right? And they wait till the following morning and he finds out that there was a, a bunch of marauding uh, conquistadors that attacked the city. He says, oh, if I was in the city, I would have gotten killed and, and if they heard my, my, my rooster uh, crow or my, uh, uh, my donkey making noise or they saw the light, well, then I would have also been implicated. That's a classic example of this idea. Um, obviously, that's an extreme example that happened to Rabbi Kiva. Uh, but the lesson is still true for us, that in our lives, the Almighty is our Father. We'd say, Avinu Matinu. He wants the best for us. Right? Which father wants their kids to suffer? None of them, right? None of parents don't want. Parents want the best for their kids. <clears throat> if the Torah compares God to our Father, clearly, it's trying to convey that God wants the best for us. Just sometimes, our Father, right, does things that we cannot realize is the best for us. I would, you know, I always say this example, like you have a kid who's running into the highway or into the street after the ball. What does the parent do? Runs and tackles him. And what does the kid think? My, 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 my father or mother, they hate me. I'm, I'm doing something I don't want to do. And they came and they tackled me and they smashed my face into the ground. They, they, they hate me. That, that's what someone thinks, right? That's, a, that's what the kid thinks. They don't have the, the, the bigger picture. They don't see why that's a, vet, a very injurious, deleterious thing for you to do is run in, the, run in the street. You might get hurt, right? Sometimes the Almighty tackles us as we're little babies. He tackles us and, and, and we're like, I'm my father in heaven. What's, what's the deal? Why would you do this to me? What God hates me, you know? But essentially, it's yes, you're disassembling your house. You're removing all the stones, but it's for your better. And that's a tremendous lesson that we could take with us throughout our lives. Thus, we could say that we indeed, we too fulfilled the di- dictum of the Talmud. This never happened, never will happen. But if we learn it and we incorporate those lessons, we gain the reward. We gain the insight. We gain the understanding that could be very helpful for us in our lives. Well, I have a question, though, then. Okay, or, or a counter com- comment question. Last question. Okay, then relating this to the spiritual side of Saras and how it impacts us, and is it then the idea that Lashonara is such a serious sin and that once you repent, the gold is that you, you understand what a serious sin it is or you understand that how it'll, how it'll affect you spiritually in the long run? I mean, does... It, it, it's it doesn't not, make any sense what I'm asking you. It's not limited to, to it, it, it's, it means it could be limited, but it, why limited? It could be, it's a generality. General principle in that we can take with us in, in a wide variety of scenarios in our lives, the, the, just the, the core idea of when bad things happen to us, or we perceive them to be bad, well, maybe they're really good. And we just well, don't know. No, it. I, I'm just talking about spiritually what happens to the soul, like with the, with the, with the what happens with, Saras is because of the severity of Lashon Ara, which yes. people don't, I think a lot of people don't realize because it's such a human nature kind of thing to be gossiping and talking about people and stuff. So I'm, I'm thinking of it just in terms of what's, what's happening with spiritually with that and trying to relate it to what you were talking about with the body and the physical. And the you want to say that the, fa- the reason why, you want to take it a step further, you want to say <clears throat> the reason why this mitzvah was used as a launching board for this lesson? Is that the question? Yeah. Why would this mitzvah... Uh, you have an idea? Mm-hmm. Because it comes right before Kedoshim, which is just to prepare to, to, for the holiness. Prepare for the holiness. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that's... But, uh, that, prepare oneself for the holiness. 
Yeah, well, okay, but the question, but her question is not why it was placed over here in the Torah, but why is it linked to this? That's a good question. I, don't I know. mean, it, you know, when you think why about the spiritual side of what, <laughs> not, not to the Parsha, but to this specific mitzvah. Why is because, the mitzvah of Lashon Hara, uh, why is that the representative to teach us this important lesson? It's yeah. a good question. I mean, spiritually, it's got to be, I mean, we know it's important, but is it because we, it has to teach people to be the severity yeah, of, to be of it? Just because it's, it's, because it's so important and it'll affect you in the world to come so seriously if you don't pay attention to this. Mm. I mean, very, I don't know if I'm really expressing what I'm trying to say here, but I'm just trying to think of the spiritual side of this because you were talking about the physical. The severity. It connects to the severity. And that's the lesson then? Is it it to, shows the extent of the severity. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. Yeah. that that's something that yeah, really means serious. for us, like we view actions as being much more tangible than words, you know? After you say something, unless it's maybe it's recorded, you know, if it's yeah, recorded, that's, that's one right. thing. But it's like it's just words, and they they're they're not tangible. We don't see them, you know. We don't, you know. So and even thoughts on a much on a much higher level. Uh, there's there's just actions, and then there's words, and there's thoughts, which is even you know. Because it goes beyond yeah. it goes beyond the physical clothing, beyond the physical house. It, mm-hmm. it, and and maybe and and maybe maybe the Torah is also telling us that even though we may view words as being inconsequential and insignificant, mm-hmm. in reality, they're not tangible, they're not the reality tangible. they're very tangible and there's a tangible um, consequence. Benefit, consequence, yeah. Very interesting. And it is so important. Yeah. It's so important. My guest uh, tonight has a different for us about our thought of being before. Achare. Yeah. Yes. Well, I think but what Lynn probably meant was... Right into me. Oh. Hmm. What I would guess is, what I would guess is, is that that just be a renaming. They would no, no, yeah, no, but it goes. It's together. No. Sometimes it's it's together. I think, but that's a good, that's that's fantastic. You know what? I think I found. Yeah, if you actually look in the in the in, in the table of contents, there is none of this. What I would guess is. That every um, no, it's very curious. What's the only one that seems to be missing? Give me time. <laughs> huh? I said, give me time. <laughs> I think probably. That's a good question. I'll ask uh, the author why they why they did it like that. What I would assume is is that that week coincided with um, that that week coincided with um, Sfirat Omer, uh, or uh, maybe it was it was sometimes it coincided with the holidays. Therefore, they decided to instead write a weekly email because this was originally email sent every week. Um, I guess that they chose to write a weekly email, not in the parsha, but on some other topic. Right. Very um, interesting. <laughs> That's amazing. You're right. It's clearly uh, and then It doesn't have it over here. I, I wonder why. told us that you know they didn't meet um, because of the holidays at certain times, and so um, I think there was it's not in here because. The content uh, material wasn't there. Right. Maybe that's very... Right. Because they weren't meeting and, um, because of the holidays. And so, yeah, he wasn't really sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you knew, you knew sure. Well, um, you, you knew that Rabbi Wally, I didn't know what that would be. He, well, he told so, us that So, so next week, next week we're going to have a problem, Right. I don't know. Maybe it really does tie in where it says he shall live when when Aaron's sons died, and they and they approached the ark, and they and they died on the spot, and they and you're you're supposed to cleanse it. So it's basically what we're talking about here. Yeah, I guess, I guess because it was left out, then it, there's more emphasis on the Rosh hmm. and you know how to cleanse. 
So let's uh, let, let's actually do at least one. <laughs> I don't want the, my, my brother to say, hey, uh, you were there for an hour. You didn't read any one of them. So um, what do you all say? Which one should we do? Should we do the one on... Uh, I would say I would do the, uh, the the second one on page two twenty three, living with Hashem. I think it kind of overlaps with a lot of the stuff that we talked about. Um, we have a volunteer. Ramban writes that Saras is a completely supernatural phenomenon. It occurs only in the chosen land of Eretz Israel, and afflicts only the Jewish people and only when they maintain an elevated level of spirituality. When an avera... There is a sin or a misdeed. Mm-hmm, ...is committed in such a spiritually charged environment, Hashem causes Saras to appear on the sinner's house, clothing a body to indicate that he has distanced himself from the offender as a result of the transgression. Now, what's interesting is that the first thing we find out, find out about the uh, uh, the person who commits the, the sin of the Lashon Hara uh, is that he gets isolated. He has to go outside of the uh, of the you know of the of the encampment encampment. So, if let's say Jerusalem, you got to go out of the city. You got to just you know be there like as a loner. So, it's actually kind of very interesting. What does someone who speaks ill will about someone else? They're uh, breeding discord. Right, they're breeding disunity. Right, they're they're causing, you know, the Jewish people to be more fractured. Right. Thus, the Torah says, you try to cause people to be isolated. You yourself are going to be isolated. You try to cause this between between. You try to cause a rift between other people. Well, you know what? You'll be distanced from other people as well. And and the Maya says, right, I'm distancing myself from you as well. Interesting. Continue. In such an era, B'nai Yisrael lived with an incredible level of hashtachah Yes, that means, hashtacha means supervision. Pratis means uh, personal supervision. Okay, so you, how did you pronounce it? Hashtachah, you read it, you read it correctly. Hashtachah. Okay. okay. Um, A person who spoke Lashon Hara would immediately be punished with Saras. It was if Hashem were literally speaking as two friends would speak to each other. Even so, Ramban writes that people were afflicted with Saras only after B'nai Israel conquered and divided against Israel, because only after they were settled would they have the peace of mind to fully recognize Hashem and his Hashgaha products. So ironically, the, the Saras is a uh, is when you have two realities that conflict. On one hand, you have a nation that's very close to God, you know, and it's very spiritually charged, and it's in Israel, and it's after they're all settled. You know, they're when they're close to God, yet they do something which is counter to God or a sin. That the culmination of those two things causes harass. So it's like kind of ironic, you know. If 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 we're if we don't sin, well, then you don't have it. If we're not close to God, we don't have it either. We have to be also close to God, but also do something which is antithetical to that. That creates harass. Okay, do we have another volunteer for the next? That, that creates the protection. No, no, not the protection. That reality, that environment, is the arena where where the misdeed is reflected in such a tangible way. But the hashtachah reveals itself when? Hashtachah means where people have the realization that God is with them, living with them, like it is, is, is supervising them on an individual basis. So they, have that, they had that realization when they, when they came into Israel. Well, it says they have, to, they have to also conquer and divide Israel, because if they're still in, the, in a state of warfare... Uh, as we know, the, the four, first 14 years was about uh, conquering and then dividing, divvying up Israel. Uh, then they didn't have the peace of mind to have this realization of this state of being. But I thought you said that that comes when they have the... Um, the Saras comes when they have the two conflicts? The two well, I, I said it, it's together. only when a deed is done that is not... In harmony with the state of the Jewish people at that time. But what happens? Then the Tzaras happens. I mean, Tzaras happens to the Jews when they're in Israel and they're spiritually charged and they're close to God, yet someone does this sin. Yeah. 
that's never happened. Well, 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 no. The trust in the house has never happened. Huh? Trust on the house. Well, so, if, if you look look at all the stories in in the in the Torah, is even after they conquered the land, they had all these problems. Right. So they were never in a what I would call a hundred percent spirituality. But it that's seems why I think the Torah said the the Talmud said it never happened. Well, but remember, you do have, let's say, the periods of the eighty years of 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 of, uh, of David and Solomon, for example. Uh, you do it. You did have a time during the times of Joshua and the prophets, because when we had prophets, that repre- that was during a time of much more intense spiritual connection to Hashem, correct? Yeah. Although it wasn't perfect. The times of 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 Tzitia. Yeah, I'm saying we're, we're talking about a, a period of hundreds and hundreds of years. Of course, there was a lot, of, and, and you read the books of the prophets, the narratives, there's a lot of issues going on over there. But those issues are spread out over hundreds of years. For the vast majority of the time, uh, you know, there was a, a certain stability and, and, and a very heightened state of spiritual reality. But it primes, the, priming the people for the Hashkata happens when the difficulty comes. When that conflict comes and it challenges, that's when the opportunity to step up to do the tikkun happens. Well, of, uh, of course. And, but that's, that's the reality of our life. Right. We, we, we live con- continually in this conflict. Thus, there's continual opportunity. But it sounds like the hashkaka happens when the, when the conflict comes into existence. When there's the conflict and the avera. Well, the Hashkacha exists at all time. That's just a, a, a reflection of the state of the Jewish people at that time. The, but a sin under those conditions is reflected by the Tsaras. Um, Lynn, you want to read the next two chapters? Yeah. The next two paragraphs? I'll, I'll, okay. yeah, go ahead. Uh, the essence. Yitziad Mitzrayim, which means the exodus from Mitzrayim from Egypt. So what, he, what he's saying here is that kind of if you look at the uh, modality of Jewish growth and achievement in spiritual reality, it is linked to how close someone is to the idea of Ashkacha Pratit, i.e. the realization that God is constantly involved with their lives, constantly guiding them, constantly uh, um, holding them by their hands, so to speak. And, and Pesach is, we just celebrate the holiday of Pesach. And Pesach is trying to bring these ideas uh, you know, down to us to bridge the gap between what we know, perhaps, and what we actually feel we live. Okay, do we have a volunteer for the rest of the? 
unfortunately? Unfortunately, Pashkaga Pratis is an abstract concept for many of us. We acknowledge it in our minds, but it never makes its way into our hearts. What is a practical application of Pashkaga Pratis to which we can relate? Many people experience jealousy of another person's superior midos, perhaps, or of someone else's greater intellectual capabilities. Some gifted individuals might wish that they could forego their talents so that they need not answer to all those who expect more from them. The solution to these problems is internalizing the, the concept of Pashkaka Pratis. Each person was put in his particular situation with a plethora of external and internal factors tailored to his unique purpose in life. It will not help to be like your neighbor or friend because you will never accomplish what you have to accomplish. Rav Natali Amsterdam once commented to his Rebbe, Rav Yisrael Salanter, that if, if he would have the intellectual capacity of Shagas Aryeh, um, the heart of Yesod Bisharish Avodah, and the Midos of Rav Yisrael Salanter, he would be able to serve Hashem properly. Rav Yisrael <coughs> responded, Rav Natali, with your mind, with your heart, and with your midos, you can become the true Oved Hashem. Oved Hashem, you are meant to be. So, um, we, the idea of Ashtachapatis means that God is guiding us on an individual level. So, who I am with the circumstances of my life, with my tools that I was given uh, to accomplish whatever it is I need to accomplish, those are tailored for whatever it is I need to accomplish. So I could say, hey, you know what, if I had this guy's intelligence or this person's uh, qualities or that person's charisma, right, then, then I could be what I need to be. Well, that is a lapse in Hashtachah Pratis. It's a lapse in the realization that God is involved with us individually. So that's a very a very a crucial lesson. I even even throughout this other idea, I like that, that um, some people want to have other people's qualities and some people want to have other people's responsibilities, you know? Some people say, oh, gosh, I have all these capabilities, and now there's so much demanded of us, uh, demanded of me, I'd rather just play PlayStation all day, you know? <laughs> you know, that, that's the opposite, where someone, someone wants to forego all the responsibilities that come with their prodigious abilities. Uh, and both of them are, 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 are wrong paths, but both of them are a repudiation of the idea of, of God tailoring what it is that we need to do with what it is that we are given to accomplish that. I think it's a nice, important lesson that we'll take with us. And uh, yes, this was a lot of fun. I, I should fill in more often, I think, no? Yeah, great, great class. Uh, I don't know. I'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But uh, well, you will be sorely missed.